Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago, and I'm with my co-hosts today, Rob Hunt and Jim Marty. Jim's back after uh, a break last week when he was out east on some business, which he's going to fill us up on, as well as uh, giving uh, continuing the retrospective of Jim's accounting career in cannabis. And uh, this week, we get to learn a lot of good stuff. Really, it's kind of what defines Jim, I think, uh, in the cannabis industry, as he uh, made the switch from regular accounting over into cannabis accounting. And Although today it probably seems like a pretty regular thing to do, uh, you know, for an accountant at that time to risk their license by by bringing on cannabis clients had to be challenging. So I uh, look forward to hearing what Jim has to say about that. And then we've got some great music stuff. Uh, Jim has become our resident goose expert, and he's going to give us an update on a recent goose concert. They're, they're the band that even my kids are talking about, so I guess that's going to be worthwhile. Uh, and then we have a really, really great uh, show picked out for you uh, from 1973, uh, December 19th, in the uh, Hickson Convention Hall in Tampa, Florida, which is a great show in its own right, but uh, in this instance is, you know, further immortalized as being the uh, Dick's Picks volume number one, the very beginning of the whole Dick's Picks release when ultimately became Dave's Picks release series. And, uh, you know, if Dick picked it to be number one, you have to believe that it's is as great a show as it as it listens to and seems to be. In fact, just to give everybody uh, a little taste of that, Dan, can you run a little bit of the... Uh, uh, Here Comes Sunshine, which was a, a big tune that year with a wonderful opener, uh, opening uh, melody. Thank you, sir. That's Here Comes Sunshine uh, from the show down in uh, Tampa, Florida on December 19th, 1973. We'll be talking about that and a lot of other uh, show, songs featured in that show a, a little bit later. Um, but first of all, let me say hi to uh, Jim Marty really quickly. Jim, how are you doing? Good to uh, have you back. Very good. Back here in Denver. After some travels, I uh, visited two uh, large site cultivation sites. Excellent. And we'll get into those in one second. Let me just very quickly say hey to our other co-host, Rob Hunt, in sunny Florida, as always. Rob, what's going on and how are you sunny doing? Sunny Florida. California, sorry. Well, I'm moving all over the place, Larry. <laughs> you know, all those sunny places after a while here in Chicago, we just kind of get them all Yeah, the well, it's uh, doing really well. But uh, yeah, not moving around quite that fast. Still staying put down here in the North County, San Diego. Very nice. Okay, good. Um, well, let's swing back to Jim really fast. Jim, tell us about... Uh, your trip out east, what you were doing there, and uh, you know some of the hurdles that you run into along the way. Yes, I'm uh, doing some site visits to some uh, very large 100,000 square foot cultivation, one in Michigan, one in Massachusetts, um, and they are talking about merging together, so that's what my involvement was, was doing some M&A work, merger and acquisition work. But boy, the trials and tribulations, uh, just trying to get open, uh, you know, the building departments are, are not your friends. And it uh, seems like they, they throw up all kinds of bricks in the wall and tr problems. They, they, they find problems. They don't find solutions. And 
you know, one of my, one of the clients had put in many thousand dollars worth of beautiful brand new ductwork that had to be torn out because in the middle of their build out, the city they were in, who will go unnamed, uh, changed their CO2 emissions standards. So uh, nothing but nothing but headaches. Back over to Massachusetts, um, hundred hundred and some year old building, one of those old brick factories in Massachusetts, and. Uh, the building department said, well, you're not going to do anything until you put in uh, a sprinkler system for the whole 125,000 square feet, even though your first phase is 15,000 square feet. So that was a, a half a million dollar expense that uh, the client had to put, put up to uh, even get his, uh, his building permit uh, moving forward. So some of the trials and tribulations, um, you know, cost is just amazing being a cost accountant that I am. We started out thinking $300 a square foot, $350 a square foot. Now with the price increases and uh, delays because of uh, infrastructure problems, we're we're looking at $500 a square foot. So do the math, 100,000 square feet times $500 a square foot, you're looking at $50 million. Might take uh, several thousand pounds of cannabis to get that money back. So, but it's interesting, and United took United Airlines took good care of me. My flights were on time, and uh, so here I am, back from uh, two quick business trips. Well, let me ask you this though, Jim. You know, because as we're going to hear in a few minutes, uh, your involvement in the cannabis industry in Colorado certainly began very close to the beginning of it. When you when you make these site visits now, how do you compare it? You know, to the the facilities and the things you used to see ten plus years ago when this was all just first getting off the ground. Uh, I mean, do you see um, uh, an upgrading in, in in equipment and efficiency and processing that you know demonstrates you know what people have learned over this period of time? Yes, there's a lot more automation. I mean, back at the beginning here, 10, 12 years ago in Colorado, you know, all the growing was on the floor in five-gallon buckets. Uh, They'd throw up some sodium lights and uh, paint the walls white, and you had yourself a grow. Uh, So, you know, just a few thousand dollars to get started uh, 12 years ago. Uh, very different today. Twelve years ago, they were glad that they helped us out here in Colorado because we were taking over buildings that uh, had been empty and abandoned. Uh, so we had very helpful building departments here. In fact, there was v- virtually no regulations or code till after the fact. They would come and visit you after your grow was up and running. Say, what do you, what do you got going here? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, now it's you know rolling racks and automated irrigation systems and heating and air conditioning systems that are all computerized and each room has its own little com- computer panel on the wall to check your humidity and your temperature. So yeah, it's changed dramatically in 10 years. Well, okay. Well, you know, imagine where it'll be 10 years from now. So all good stuff. And uh, thank you for sharing uh, on that. Um, we do have a couple of other uh, news items on the marijuana side uh, that I think are worth touching on today. Um, and the first one, and you know, Jim, forgive me for saying because you're 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 about to you know increase the numbers of this group, but it's the uh, current upswing in the use of marijuana. It's okay. I'm a I'm a senior citizen. It's okay. okay. Just making sure there, you know, but it's a, a upswing in use of marijuana by seniors. And there's been a couple of articles that I've seen out there. Uh, one of them most recently at cannabisnews.com. You know, it, it's just really interesting that the, the way that the numbers have gone up. I believe they say that the proportion of adults 65 years of older who reported recent cannabis use jumped by 18%, rising from 5.1% in 2019 to 6% in 2020. 
Uh, so, you know, to me, any upswing is good. And then uh, they also say that in 2020, more older adults reported using marijuana at some point in their life and that that number jumped from 32 to 36 percent. And, you know, I like to hear that kind of stuff because, you know, for better or for worse, I still think of senior citizens even as my father, you know, even though I guess, uh, you know, by definition, I'm now uh, within striking range of being considered one myself. Uh, but, you know, but it doesn't seem strange that, that, that I or my contemporaries are, uh, you know, smoking marijuana. But to imagine my father and the guys who he used to gather with to play, you know, gin rummy or bridge uh, sitting around and smoking joints is, you know, something beyond uh, what even my imagination can conjure up. So, uh, you know, to me, this is just good news all the way around. Um, but I guess not really surprising, right? Because as the Woodstock generation ages, this is where we wind up. Rob, what are you seeing at all, you know, in your in your market work, you know, with respect to the uh, elderly in this country and their, their use in cannabis? Yeah, I mean, what I saw is much more happening like three or four years ago where I started seeing a lot of people over age 65 really asking about cannabis for the first time. It was the first time I'd seen like just massive waves of, you know, kind of parents, people I consider to be my parents' friends asking questions, you know, trying to get more expert on, on what it was and what different things did and what the different cannabinoids were. So I think there was a great deal of curiosity that existed a couple of years ago that I think now is translated into um, to a, you know, significantly more use. But, you know, I don't really see an uptick in it. Like, it, the way I look at it, everyone smokes weed. So it's, you know, I, I never think about it from the perspective of like, okay, who are the new adopters? I just think about it from the perspective of like, now maybe people are more open where they used to, um, to be more reserved and now will smoke a joint more publicly than they would have, you know, um, Previously. Well, that may be true, but you see, you're young enough that you don't have to think about this yet, right? So, you know, Jim's there, he's thinking about it, but, it's, you know, I'm having to, you know, going to have to start thinking about it too. So, you know, I, I like a world that's acclimated to older people who like to smoke marijuana, you know, maybe that makes a difference in terms of, uh, you know, long-term care options and things like that available, you know, uh, for people when they get to certain ages and stuff would be a bad idea. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, it, it's nice to see because I also think that, politicians, you know, to some degree like to cater to older people, you know, in terms of seeing them as a, as a voting block and, and all of that. And, you know, the more people of that, uh, of that age group that are uh, identified as smoking cannabis, or at least in favor of it being out there, can only be a good thing. So I would, chi- I would chime in and say it's not just smoking. Sitting around the dining room table at Thanksgiving with a lot of people my age or even a few years older, it's, they love their gummies. Uh, they love the edibles. They, they take it before bed. So I think a lot of the uptick is is not just flour. I, I think you're right, and 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 I and I really misspoke because I, I I just meant cannabis, uh, THC in general. But you're you're right. I, I you know I don't see older people as much going back to smoking. Although I know a few that enjoy doing it very much. But uh, yeah, certainly the availability of gummies and things like that, which are both discreet. And five to 10 milligrams, uh, you know, for somebody who has a history of smoking cannabis, you know, maybe just the right amount to, to give you whatever type of uh, effect you're looking for. So, but, you know, look, it, it, it's good. It, it just shows that, that this is a, uh, like, it's not tied into politics. It's not tied into gender. It's not tied into age. Rob, you said it best. Everybody just likes to smoke and that's what it's all about. One other story I think we have that's, uh, also interesting as, as we look at uh, different things that the government does from time to time that interfere with the industry. And, and this is an interesting one because, you know, it, 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 it kind of falls in the middle. And I'm, I'm curious what you guys have to think about it. But basically, there was a Michigan judge uh, who struck down part of a huge marijuana recall 
uh, for additional testing. And uh, the numbers involved uh, had the recall gone through. Well, there's actually two recalls that were ordered. And the numbers were huge, but uh, people in the industry were able to get one of those uh, struck down. And, you know, the legal reasons for doing so are interesting, I suppose, on a legal basis. But what I find really interesting is this. You know, the judge who issued the recall order that got struck down, you know, was that judge anti-marijuana? Or was that judge just saying, hey, look, marijuana's fine, but if there's any chance at all that there might be a problem with this product or, you know, that, that it requires additional testing, you know, additional testing would certainly seem to be the, the smart and safe way to go. But yet you can understand the pushback from the industry with respect to the volume they were talking about, how much it would cost and, and the, the potential damage it could do, you know, to existing businesses. So I guess, you know, starting with you, Rob, my first question is, where do we find that balance between consumer safety versus, you know, uh, giving some deference to the industry and its financial concerns? I mean, as of right now, I don't think the government really much cares. Uh, I haven't seen anything to date that shows that uh, they're trying to balance anything outside of what they believe their needs to be, which either is either consumer protection or generation of tax revenue. But, um, you know, at a certain point, you know, I, I think we will see you know, major changes that instantaneously kind of turn the tables on that. But there certainly hasn't been any motivation to, to speak of. And obviously, we'll probably speak about that in a second as we talk about the, uh, the failure of safety to get through again. Well, certainly that too. And I think that that's an important thing. And, and I guess, you know, let's talk about that. It, do you see this as, you know, the judge saying that he just doesn't respect the industry's safety standards and therefore he wants to see more numbers, wants to see more results? Yeah, I just don't think we have a, um, a, a canon of information yet that's broad enough for people that don't understand the industry to draw from. So, you know, they're going back to the only thing they know, which is, oh, it's not, we don't have enough data. There's enough information. There's enough testing. The fact of the matter is that if cannabis is, you know, proven to be dangerous, it would have ex- revealed itself, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago as being dangerous. You know, everyone knows what the stats are and how big the illicit market is. Everyone knows how many people, you know, use cannabis in the United States. Everyone knows kind of like what the consumption rates are. That, uh, you know, for a judge to do this, it's arbitrary and capricious because even if there's not empirical data to support it, there's certainly enough anecdotal data from the last 30 to 50 years of, of consumption to suggest that, you know, how many hospital room visits have there been? How many, you know, people have actually overdosed? I mean, there's a thousand different ways you can show the safety standards that existed just in general, not to mention like everything that's being uh, required now of the state markets. So, yeah, I, just, I, I don't think that the judge is using a, um, uh, a, a sort of baseline of what a prudent person would, would look to in this. So it's got to be arbitrary and capricious, and they can just rely on the fact that there isn't enough data out there for them to support it, which is, you know, maybe maybe true um, specifically, but certainly just, uh, you know, false in terms of, you know, what we know to be true out there. Well, but but this has always been the problem, right? Because judge everyone, I mean, to, to, to sit there and to say what marijuana is doing on Schedule 1 at all is to speak to exactly what you're saying. We, we all know that it's absurd for it to be on Schedule 1, and in fact, I'm sorry I don't have it in front of me, but there was a case out in San Francisco a few years ago where a federal district judge was the first judge who said she was going to actually hold an evidentiary hearing on the issue. And she did. And the, the cannabis industry came in with all sorts of statistics and, and studies and everything. And, and, you know, even making the argument that you make that, you know, our own anecdotal evidence, you know, suggests to us that the safety and the efficacy of it. And the, the state put on one or two so-called expert witnesses. And, you know, I think that the judge in her comments suggested that she was inclined to align herself 
with the cannabis industry, but then ultimately took the kind of safety position of, but it's not really a matter of judicial determination. And this is an issue that should ultimately be determined by the congressional branch of government. And, you know, if Congress wants to, you know, to, to voice in on this, this and change it off of a schedule one, then it should go ahead, which I kind of saw as a little bit of a cop out. You know, it's just everybody passing the buck. We all recognize this, this is absurd, but nobody's really willing to step in and do anything about it. And, you know, I think it does lead to problems where you have uh, other public servants who are just simply trying to do their job. And I, I don't know enough about this judge in Michigan to know whether he or she, uh, you know, is otherwise, you know, considered to be um, hostile to the marijuana industry. But what I have found in 30 plus years of litigation is that when judges are unfamiliar with a topic, whatever the topic might be, uh, you know, it's going to really take a lot to convince them to have the willingness to be able to move forward. And as the litigator or the attorney, it's your job to educate them properly so that they know what's going on. And maybe that's what happened here, uh, where they were able to educate this judge at least enough to get, you know, one part of the recall struck down. And certainly that saves at least part of the people up there, uh, you know, considerable amounts of money. And, you know, so maybe we should be looking at that as a positive, as a step forward. Jim, what do you think about that? I agree with what Rob was saying. If there were some problems, we would have known it by now. We've had 10, 12 years of legal cannabis in many, many states, and no severe outbreaks, no severe hospitalizations. You know, this is not a harmful product. We, we all know that by now. Well, we don't, though, right? I mean, here in Illinois, all the time, I'm going to town hall meetings where I, you know metropolitan areas have the right to opt in or out of the, the state adult use program. And based on the things that people are saying there, you know, what the three of us are saying right now and just kind of accepting it, accepting as, you know, as common, you know, as the sky is blue, these folks will, you know, argue to their dying breath that that just isn't the case, right? And how dangerous it is and how bad it is and how much oversight we need. You know, maybe that raises a whole other question to be thinking about, which is, you know, has the industry done a very good job of educating the public and normalizing, you know, marijuana use? And, and I suppose part of that just depends on where in the country you live. Um, but, you know, even overall for, you know, uh, government officials at any level and in any of the branches of government, I think that the problem is, is that those folks have not been normalized yet. And they're just not willing to engage in their official uh, duties and, and activities, whether it's legislative or administrative or, or judicial, in a manner that looks at cannabis as anything other than what we've been told it is, which is a Schedule One dangerous product. Yep, that's where it's at. That is where it's at. Uh, but here's the interesting thing, and I'm going to use this to transition now over to, uh, to Jim. The reason why this is relevant is because last time we kind of heard how Jim got his start as an accountant uh, and, uh, you know, got his career going. But today's part of Jim's story is really, really important because this is ultimately, in my opinion, at least what I know of Jim, came to define him for who he is and, you know, which makes him our good friend and a a valuable contributor to this show and to the industry overall. Uh, And I'm going to let Jim tell the story about how he was one of the first, if not the first CPA, certainly in Colorado, Uh, to start accepting cannabis clients and signing cannabis-based tax returns. Jim, let us know about it. Well, thank you. Thank you for the nice intro. And yes, last week we started out on how this whole business started in one bedroom of our house with my wife and I. And today we're part of a 200-person CPA firm uh, with 600 cannabis clients nationwide. So today will be the middle part. Next week's uh, with mixed emotion will be the uh, last show I do here for the Deadhead Cannabis Show because I am rolling off to uh, retirement. Uh, but the middle part uh, starts really in 2009. Uh, I went to the first uh, six or seven Bonnaroo's and I came back from Bonnaroo the summer of 2009. 
had been gone for about two, three weeks, and my friends were there, Jim, Jim, you would not believe all that's happened while you were gone. All these dispensaries are opening up, and they all need an accountant. So the quick backgrounder on that is Colorado passed a constitutional, state constitutional amendment for medical marijuana in 2002. But no, and people grew six plants, 12 plants if you were a couple, but nobody opened retail or large cultivations until the Obama administration issued two memos, the Ogden memo and the Cole memos, basically saying the federal government would not interfere with state licensed, state compliant medical marijuana companies. There was no adult use in Colorado at that time. I don't believe there was any adult use anywhere at that time. When those memos came out, it seemed like overnight, but it was probably six, seven months, we had over a thousand cannabis shops open up. And so having, you know, been a friend of the plant for my whole adult life, I started uh, looking into it. I started attending marijuana meetings in Denver uh, with the uh, regulators as they were. There hadn't been any formal marijuana commissions like the MIG that they have today, the marijuana uh, review boards and such like that. It was just the building departments and some people from the Department of Taxation here in Colorado and what I call the cannabis attorneys, which Larry Mishkin uh, is one of my friend uh, marijuana attorneys, and um, started you know going to the meetings, learning more about it, culminating in me going out to San Francisco in November of 2009, where I got to meet with some of the top lawyers and CPAs uh, in cannabis in California. Hank Levy, specifically, became a good friend of mine. Uh, Henry Wykowski, who uh, very very well-known cannabis attorney, has some very high-profile cases. And Hank told me two very important things over a cup of coffee one morning. He said, Jim, the IRS wants you to help these people. And two... We've been signing these tax returns in California since 1995 or 1996, and a CPA has never been sanctioned for doing it. So armed with that knowledge, I came back from that trip, and I told the the marijuana attorneys in Denver, I said, all right, I'll do it. I'll sign their tax returns. And I very quickly had over 100 cannabis clients. Uh, In fact, by 2014, my cannabis practice was larger than my 25-year-old CPA practice. So that's the middle. That's the middle part. And uh, I'll fill in what happened from there uh, next week. Well, before we go, and just, you know, because I'm not a big fan of cliffhangers, I have to ask you, you know, that first year you're sitting there signing tax returns. Like, did you go home at night expecting to get a knock on the door? Did you generally think, well, I must be okay? I mean, you know, you're, you're putting your career on the line by doing that. Well, what, what Hank uh, Levy and Henry Wykowski told me t- to be true, I uh, very um, soon on had, in fact, I got involved with IRS audits right away on tax returns that I had not signed, where other CPAs had done that a year or two before I got into it, and they asked me to help them with the uh, audits. So I got to know IRS agents very quickly and what they were thinking and how they were enforcing 280E. In fact, uh, I have a quick little side story of my my first time in tax court, uh, I've been on the witness stand many, many times, both in cannabis and outside of cannabis as an expert witness. And the only time I had a Daubert challenge, a successful Daubert challenge against me, and you lawyers know what a Daubert challenge is, but it basically means you're full of shit, we're kicking you out of this courtroom. So I was on the witness stand in tax court, explaining to the judge why 280E didn't apply to a state legal industry. The uh, IRS attorney uh, stood up and objected and uh, asked for a Daubert challenge, which the uh, the judge said, well, 
I really want to hear what Mr. Marty has to say. But later, after the fact, he did uphold the Daubert challenge. So, uh, but I did get to tell the tax court what I thought. Now, since then, 10 years since then, the IRS has never lost a 280E case. And 280E, that some of you may not be aware of, it says that you don't get any deductions if you're selling a Schedule One substance, which cannabis is. So anyway, uh, I learned a lot about 280E in the School of Hard Knocks and head-to-head -head with IRS agents. We've had a few small victories, allocations of rent to inventory, allocations of uh, labor to inventory. Uh, but for the most part, if you're a retail shop, your rent Advertising and labor are not deductible. Okay, well, good. Thank you for that. And, and you know, for our listeners who may still have a little bit of difficulty understanding what a Dalbert challenge is, it's basically an opportunity for a lawyer to question the competency of the alleged expert witness and whether or not that witness is entitled to be recognized as an expert. Um, and if anyone ever wants to see the best Daubert challenge of all time, I suggest you watch my cousin Vinny. And uh, there's a wonderful scene where uh, he has to get his fiance uh, certified as a uh, as an expert witness. So watch that, and uh, you know maybe have a little cannabis in advance, and you'll laugh and have a good time. Jim, thank you very much for that, and, and we'll look forward to uh, hearing uh, the exciting conclusion next week and having our chance to say our final goodbyes to you. Uh, and for now, at least, as you take off and uh, move on to that next great stage of life that all the rest of us out there slaving for are hoping we can reach one day. So, well, Jim, thank you so much for all of that. Uh, you know, uh, getting to hear about the early days in the industry is always interesting from somebody who was there. Uh, you know, obviously, there's a lot to share, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing the end of the story next week and seeing where we're going to go from there. Uh, before we transition into music, uh, there is one other issue that we want to talk about uh, regarding banking. Rob, what can you tell us is going on right now with that? Well, the industry got dealt a little bit of a blow this week, Larry, when um, the Congress and the Senate decided not to tuck in the Safe Banking Act into uh, the National Defense Spending Bill, which uh, was just authorized officially as of, um, as of Thursday, or excuse me, as of Tuesday. So essentially what happened there is that, you know, language that was meant to be tucked in as a rider that would have allowed for the Safe Banking Act to go through ultimately didn't make it into the bill, despite the fact that you had people on both sides of the aisle swearing that they weren't going to pass this bill without it. And um, the, the final version in the vote happened and it was not there. And here we are with no safe banking still. And, um, you know, everyone wondering what, what the next step is for, uh, for Congress to try to pass a piece of cannabis legislation. That's crazy. And so there's no real, you know, accountability or fingerprints on anything like this. It was just a bill that showed up uh, without specific language in it. And so the, the, the legislators weren't given the opportunity to vote on the issue that so many had hoped they might have an opportunity to vote on. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, I mean, it's, uh, <clears throat> the language has been out there for a long time, but as a standalone bill, uh, as a standalone bill, there wasn't much motivation to try to get it on, on the floor. But there was motivation to say, okay, well, we don't need to do that. We can actually just tuck it in somewhere else. And it was gonna, meant to be done through the National Defense Authorization Act. Now, what I'll say is that it would have sailed through no problems had it actually gotten in there. But, you know, last minute didn't which doesn't surprise me. You know, what I, what I think is surprising about it is just how many people in the industry were actually convinced that it was going to make it in there and were already counting on it. And if you looked at, you know, sort of stock prices over the last week, there's a great deal of euphoria that, you know, here's a chance for the banking to, uh, to get solved. And we're actually going to see, um, you know, it, it move through quickly. And as a result, you know, we're going to have, um, you know, access to leverage. We're going to have access to, to banks with major, um, with major financial institutions. Like I, I think the, the likelihood of that happening was always next to nil. 
And the fact that it's being passed in a piece of legislation that has to be passed annually made it really unlikely that any of the major banks, you know, the, the Chases and the Wells and the, B, and the Bofas out there were actually going to change their policies anyway because, you know, if they started lending to these companies, let's say they were lending to, you know, the largest of the, of the cannabis businesses or even the smaller ones, you know, if it was a four or five year note that they'd have on these things and all of a sudden the composition of the Senate of the House changes and, you know, the support is, is gone for, uh, for, you know, keeping this thing every year then essentially these larger banks would be stuck with, um, with notes that were going to companies that were still technically federally illegal. And there's no possible way that the compliance departments at those larger institutions would support something like that, knowing the risk profile. So basically, in a nutshell, what you're saying on the back end there is because it was going to be passed uh, by tying it to a piece of legislation that itself has to be renewed annually, uh, the approval that we would be getting in the industry uh, could have a lifespan of no longer to that bill. It would have to be reapproved every year. That's correct. And when you talk about the um, you talk about the larger financial institutions, they're uh, pretty reticent to do something that needs to be changed. You know, every year has to be reapproved every year because, as I said, you know, the ramifications of them actually opening these accounts or you know servicing these accounts uh, has a lifespan significantly longer than the bill did. So if you're thinking about it from the perspective of you know kind of what's the horizon on the transaction. If I'm sitting there in the legal department of, of Bank of America and I'm looking at this thing objectively going, well, wait a second, this thing's going to be passed again, passed again next year and we don't know what's going to happen next year. You know, we could get a complete change in the Senate, complete change in the House. We don't have the same support. Something could happen. They're going to say, yeah, you know, we decide not to pass this year. Then we're stuck, you know, holding, um, you know, accounts and holding paper with companies that um, don't have any, you know, congressional support to say that what they're doing is, uh, is technically legal. And we're relegated now to um, aiding and betting and, you know, potentially money laundering. So it's, uh, it, I didn't think even if it had passed that it was going to get all that much support from, from the banks they were trying to influence. But the, the bigger takeaway is here's the first real chance for Congress to actually pass a, a real piece of legislation, and, and they balked. Well, that's a shame. It's uh, surprising that you know, we don't even know who was behind it and how, you know, why it didn't get included. So n- no fingerprints. Well, that is the Washington, D.C. way, isn't it? Or at least the way I always remember it. So nevertheless, uh, it did not make it in. That is disappointing. Uh, thank you, Rob, for that, uh, for that very detailed update. That's good to know and I'm sure helpful to anyone who has real interest in this industry. Moving along then, uh, we do want to turn to the music side and, and have a chance to talk about things there. Uh, Jim has become the show's resident goose expert. Uh, we have talked about goose a little bit on this show. I know from talking to my kids that goose is the really next big thing in the jam band industry, and you know that they're it, whatever it is. But uh, you know, maybe five years from now, we'll all be talking about how we were talking about goose on the Deadhead Cannabis Show back in 2021, uh, which can only be a good thing. So, uh, Jim, tell us about a, a show or two that you just had a chance to see recently. Yeah, Goose uh, played uh, Endeavor the uh, Sunday and Monday before Thanksgiving. Uh, two wonderful shows. I got to go to the first night. Uh, we have a brand new venue. It holds about 4,000 people called the Mission Ballroom. It's part of a, a renovation of a part of Denver called Rhino Neighborhood. Uh, they're building apartments and workspace and a beautiful new venue. It opened up in 2019, obviously had some COVID shutdown, and they're getting going again now in 2021. But, uh, yeah, Goose is really playing well, and the, the sound was phenomenal. Their lead guitar player, I'm going to butcher his name, Rick Maitartanda. Certainly one of the top touring guitar players out there today, just really, just really nailing it. Um, so we had a really great time, uh, very comfortable venue, uh, lots of room to dance, uh, w- wide aisles, 
and uh, you know, really handy bars and bathrooms. So great time for all. Um, I'm sure Goose will be selling out Red Rocks next summer. Well, that's exciting. You know, I, I again, I still haven't really spent a lot of time listening to them. And, you know, I'm always the guy that is like going to be the last one to jump on board just because I'm so ingrained in the music I listen to. But the more I hear about it, the more I realize that, you know, I got to give them an opportunity and I'm sure that I will. And so, you know, look, it's good to know they're out there. It's good to know that they're, you know, reaching a cross section of the jam band fans. You know, if they're people as young as my son and, you know, as senior, let's say, as Jim and, you know, in our group here, uh, that that's a good thing. And, um, yeah, I will look forward to, to hopefully checking them out soon. Thank you, Jim. On the Deadhead side, we have uh, a show picked for today to talk about. We gave a little teaser on the intro. Uh, this is a show from the Hickson Convention Hall in Tampa, Florida in 1973. It's a, it's a show that's of such significance uh, that Dick Ledvala picked it as the original Dick's Picks, Dick's Picks Volume 1. And of course, Dick's Picks ran through 36 and then gave birth to Dave's Picks, which is now up in the 40s in terms of number of shows they've released. So we're closing in on 100 shows uh, that have been released through these two series. We haven't really spent a lot of time talking about what makes Dick's Picks or Dave's Picks special. And, you know, this may not be the show to do it in the, uh, you know, the taping and the the systems that allow them to access all the tapes in the vault now and, and all of this kind of stuff. But, you know, Dick's Picks Volume 1 uh, was part of Dick Letzvala's way of saying uh, we, we've got to bring it to the masses. They had already released one from the vault and they may have even already released two from the vault by the time Dick's Picks 1 came out. I don't remember. But for a lot of us, you know, the 1, 2, 3 that from the vault series, that seemed to be the, you know, the official live release. And at, at least I can only speak for me. But when I first heard about Dick's Picks and not being instantly familiar with Dick Ledvala at the time, uh, it took me a little while, you know, to, to really figure it all out. Now, of course, I have all of them and still love listening to all of them. Uh, but this is just a tremendous show from 1973, which we've talked about at length in, in prior shows being a special year for them. This is the tail end of that year. Uh, they're still really going strong. It, it, it's just a tremendous set list all the way around. Um, we heard the Here Comes Sunshine with such a, a distinctive tune from 1973. And that intro just automatically brings me to that to that year and, and the shows that we're about to hear and, and, and listen to. Jim, what are your thoughts uh, on this uh, particular show? And uh, I know you've, you've, you've purchased a number of the Dick's Picks releases. Yep, certainly have that show and uh, just love that intro. The, you know, Here Comes Sunshine, just great intro. The other song that we were going to discuss is Slip in My Mind right now. It's Nobody's Fault But Mine, that's it. Yeah, I looked that up last night. It's attributed to uh, Blind Willie Johnson. So an old uh, blues song from the 1920s and 30s. Yep, played uh, very, very, very rarely and irregularly by the dead, but yet it pops up every few years, you know, going back, you know, into the late 60s or early 70s even. Um, I was lucky enough to catch it at the uh, Kansas City show in September of 1985 that we've talked about before. And uh, it's just a special tune when they pull it out. There were there were a number of shows in the, in the mid-80s, I think, uh, where... Uh, you know, people talk about, I was at a show when they were playing Not Fade Away, and I swear they were playing Nobody's Fault But Mine, but Jerry never sang it. Um, and, and, you know, there's articles that talk about how uh, Jerry would break into the instrumental side of it. Uh, so getting to hear him sing it is actually uh, really, really a treat. It's, it's just a tremendous tune. And, Dan, I think we have a, uh, a clip of that song from this show queued up. Could you play that for us? Sister, she taught me. 
that's a great tune and and you know he just sings it so well it's um it's just so nice to hear and what's interesting about it from my perspective is that there's a web page out there uh that I didn't even know about but it allows you to you know look at certain dead uh, pick a song and it'll list the times that the dead played it and you know report back on all the comments and what people thought of it and this version from this show uh, on the web page has the most comments and the most positive reviews i'm sure you know in large part that's due to the attention that was drawn to it by dick picking it as as dick's picks volume one uh but you know he mentions this song and, and the rarity with which it was played and and the great way they played it on this occasion is as one of the primary reasons why he chose uh dick's picks number one uh, for his first show uh rob what are your thoughts on that I love Nobody's Fault, so anytime I get to, to hear it, it's a great one. I'm, I'm guessing the site you're talking about is Heady Version, which definitely is out there, you know, telling people what the, uh, the best versions of, of songs are, and you can vote for them and, you know, pick your, your thumbs up, thumbs down. It can rise and fall through the, uh, the ranks. But Heady, Heady Version's a, uh, an absolutely great website as a resource to, um, to find songs that, you know, if you say, what's the best version of this, and you just type in the name of the song and type in the words Heady Version, you can usually get a, a pretty good sense, and maybe maybe the number one isn't the number one, but you know the top five might be out of order, but still kind of the top five. But yeah, I, I, look, I think Dick made a great choice of the show. I think the Curtis Hicks in um, Arena from from '73 is just a stellar top to bottom show, and I think the Nobody's Fault. I, I love sort of the anytime you get a real bluesy sort of groaning wailing Garcia, um, I'm, I'm usually a pretty happy guy. For sure. And and what I like about this is, first of all, it's just classic, great, uh, Grateful Dead rock and roll. But it's interesting because starting probably with what, Dick's Picks 5 or 6, from that point forward, all they released were complete shows. They would sometimes at the end of a disc, if there was room, throw in two or three or four sh- songs from the previous night or the next night or something like that. But they were releasing entire shows. Dick's Picks 1, 2, 3, and 4, I believe, are not entire shows and this one is certainly not the entire show on this sticks picks uh which is you know in part frustrating but i think it speaks to the technology because Dick's Picks 1 was released in, I want to say, 92 or 93, I think. The Dead were still touring. Jerry was still alive. And I think it speaks, you know, to, you know, what the level of technology, not necessarily in recording, but in baby, being able to tap in and utilize those recordings uh, for commercial purposes. Um and what's really interesting about it, and you know, my opinion is that on the the CD one, the first CD from the the two CD set, it plays six songs, but it completely plays them out of order relative to where they are in the set list of the show. The second disc uh, does actually have eight shows that line up uh, consistent with the second set uh, set list for that show. Um, but but that was not uncommon for what the Dead were doing at that time when they first started releasing the Road Trip series. Uh, very many of those early on were compilations, you know, where they'd say, you know, uh, road trips, you know, volume one, series one, volume one or whatever. And it would be, you know, a little bit of, you know, the dead summer tour of whatever year. And you'd hear two songs from this show and two songs from that show. And deadheads used to write in and complain and say, screw that. We want entire shows. We don't just want little snippets from each show, you know, give us entire shows. And road trips, you know, finally swung over into that mode, and eventually, uh, you know, Dick's picks did too. Um, but I, I just, you know, I always got a kick out of that because the first time I went to actually listen to the show, I said, "Wait, the songs are out of order." Obviously, the show wasn't out of order the way they, the way they did it on Dick's picks was. But it, it was just fascinating to me, um, you know, how it how it all came together in terms of how they chose to present, 
you know, this whole vault of live music to the uh, to the dead audience. I think it's such a tremendous um, pressure to put on someone like Dick or to put on someone like Dave Lemieux saying, okay, well, especially in the early days of like, how are we going to pick, you know, which one to release out there and which one makes the most sense. And oftentimes it wasn't, you know, kind of the obvious choices, like the obvious choices, like sure, like one from the vault, the Great American Music Hall was an obvious choice. But when it started getting to things like the Curtis Hickson, you know, that's a, you had to be a pretty serious deadhead to say, you know, that's a show that's that good. You had to really know the, the, the entire anthology of their music to be able to pick a show like that out and say this one's worth releasing as a um, as a remastered, fully digitized, amazing sort of uh, production quality show. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this Dick's picks number one, great show. Listen to it many times, and uh, I love the uh, the Casey Jones, a very strong Casey Jones. I think we are going to have a little snip of that at some point. Uh, yes, we will. Um, and what's interesting is that the Casey Jones itself is not on. The album, uh, it's not on Dick's picks number one. It's it, it's part of the show, and we're we're getting our our material for the show from a different source. Um, but yeah, the Casey Jones is great. We will get to that in a minute. Uh, but that's just something else, you know. As you're mentioning that, I'm looking down at the CD which I have in front of me, and, and you know, and, and realizing it's not there. But I, I think that I recall somewhere Rob speaking, you know, to the point that you were making a minute ago that the reason Dick picked this show was because he liked this this string of songs that occupy disc two that actually are presented here in the order in which they're played, where it's just one long string of, you know, one into the next, he's gone, into truck and into nobody's fault but mine, into their jam, into the other one, another jam, into Stella Blue, and then finally, you know, around and around to, to close it out. Um, and so my, my impression is, you know, he started with that and then he figured I got to find another, you know, five or six or seven songs from the concert to throw on there for the first disc. And he chose, you know, there's nothing wrong with the songs. They're all great. And they're all played very well. And I really like them, but it's to me at least, and I'm sure a lot of other deadheads much more enjoyable to actually go to one of the websites that's out there where you can, you know, download and play these shows and, and actually pick up the songs in the order in which they're played. Certainly, when we took, talk about nerding out as deadheads, uh, you know, to me, a big part of that has always been if I'm if I'm really going to enjoy, a, you know, a truck and I'd like to know what's coming, what they're playing into that truck and what kind of transition there is or on the back end, if they're going to do a plane in the band, you know, where do they take that, you know, amazing jam that they're going to launch into and are they ever going to come back around into the reprise and um, you know, so just you know my own personal feelings about it but uh you know like i say by by i think the 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 fifth or sixth one uh you know they were into full shows and nothing but ever since what was your feeling on that rob in terms of you know not always presenting songs necessarily in the order in which they were played you know i I kind of like making sure that you get the uh, the accurate portrayal of of, you know how it was done uh, initially instead of sort of rearranging and, and picking different uh Different ways, and I understand if you're going to add a couple bonus tracks to an album, or you know, other things where you say, okay, we can put it out of order, or you're going to take an album like you know, let's, let's say like some of the things we've talked about before, like Dead Set or A Reckoning, where you might have three or four songs from the same show, but they might not be in order because they're from different parts of the set, and you're interspersing with other, you know, with other shows. You know, I'm fine with that as well. But if you're going to put a show out, stick stick with the order that the band played it. Yeah, I would agree with that. And and, and you know, as you, as you're saying that, and I'm looking at the case too. The other thing about it, you know, that always cracked me up because I had never seen it before on anything. And here it was, you know, on the back of, you know, these, these original ones, they put them in packaging to make them look like, you know, old reel to reel, 
tape boxes and stuff like that. And so on the back, the songs are all kind of typed in into little slots like they would be if you were, if, if you had a, uh, a reel to reel, but then they, they provided, uh, you know, certain technical information, recording times and hours. And, all. and, you know, for a guy like me, I look at that and it makes absolutely zero sense to me, but I just think it's cool that they took the time to put that kind of information on there. And then they got the classic caveat emptor of all time, right? And as a lawyer, um, you know, we all joke about caveat emptor and, you know, if somebody's going to buy something from you, right, which just means buyer beware, uh, you know, don't think that just because you're buying it, it's necessarily going to be the, the, the most perfect thing. And here they, you know, they, they go through with a very long and actually very funny paragraph um, about, you know, all the trials and travails that they came into and in taking this from the original two track and mastering it and, and bringing it out to the people and basically saying, you know, as they say, in other words, at the end, you know, what you hear is what you get and what you get ain't bad. And, you know, to me, that sums up the entire Grateful Dead anyway, right? You know, whatever you hear on any given night is what you're going to hear, but whatever it is, is never going to be bad. And, um, you know, it, it was just the complete package for me with this show and Dick's Picks. And, you know, like I say, I've, I've gone on to get all of them, uh, you know, maybe perhaps to my wife's dismay, but certainly to my enjoyment and uh, everlasting happiness. Um, but uh, this is a great show. And she's going to say that old uh, Grateful Dead joke, uh, the Grateful Dead are like sex and pizza. Even when it's not that good, it's still pretty good. Can't argue with that. And and then back to your point, Rob, before Dick's picks, you know, and given what my limited knowledge was at the dead at that time, limited compared to where I'm at today in terms of things that I know and have had 25 or 30 years to, to read about it, other than, you know, occasionally picking up stories from deadheads and stuff like that, for a lot of us, there was nothing to necessarily orient us you know, to this show or to make us understand, you know, that it was a significant show. But then Dick releases it. And now all of a sudden, you know, it's like, well, heck, if he picked it, it must be a worthwhile show. And for somebody like me, that's what spurred my curiosity to go out and really start digging behind the scenes with shows and, you know, to get curious as to what was going on with the band at the time and who were the performers and where were they at with all sorts of things. And, um, you know, and, and realizing the role that all of this plays and why, you know, we all joke all the time, you know, no two Grateful Dead shows are ever alike and that there's no, there's no bad Dead shows, which I suppose is marginally true. But there's certainly some shows that stand head and shoulders above the rest. And, you know, Dick Lavala and David Lemieux have done a great job, in my opinion, at least, of, of, of bringing dead, those shows to deadheads and really providing an education for a lot of deadheads, myself included. You know, I think about all of it, the houseboat tapes releases, you know, and now, you know, it focused me on all of that or, um, you know, uh, all the other recordings that we hear about the role that Betty Cantor played initially or Bob Matthews, we've talked about him. And, um, you know, Ludvala was a, a deadhead's deadhead, you know, and it, it was it was more than, you know, he didn't just nerd out on it. He lived it. It was it was everything about him. And, and you know, thanks to him, you know, there's multiple generations of deadheads, you know, who will know when somebody says, yeah, I'd really like to listen to the Grateful Dead. What should I listen to? Dick's Picks right? Dave's picks, go listen to that, start with that. And then, you know, when you're done, come back and we'll give you some more. But, you know, to me, uh, that that's always going to be enough to get somebody going because they're just that great. I agree completely. Uh, some shows are definitely standout shows you remember forever. Other ones are you know, just okay. But uh, no, I like my Dick's picks, my Dave's picks, a great series. Enjoy getting in the in the mail every quarter. Yep. It, it's, it's really gone on to become a great thing. Um, Rob, are you a collector of the Dick's Picks, Dave's Picks? I'm not. I don't think I've ever bought one. I, I think that, you know, for years and years, I was just a collector of, uh, of tapes and then, you know, CDs. 
And uh, then ultimately, you know, got the, uh, the the famed terabyte that kept me going for, you know, for quite a while. And now I've got, you know, I'm, I'm serious XM. I've got all the grateful that I want. And I've also got, you know, archive.org on the Internet. And then I've also got uh, ReListen uh, tuned into my Sonos system. So I can pull any show from any place at any time and, you know, listen to it pretty much wherever I want. See, so that's why I'm the sucker that they sell all the stuff to, because I still like to buy the CDs and read all the books and all the material that comes with it and all the packaging and all of that. But I was also the same way when I bought LPs. You know, I, I was all about the packaging and the, the artwork and the cover work and the inside fold of an album and, the, you know, the artwork you'd see. That's just part of the fun. So, you know, the, the, thank God for people like me so the dead can keep making money, I guess. But, uh, yeah, the, this is great, and it's, it, it's just a tremendous series. And we are going to have uh, one final tune uh, on it in just a minute on our way out. But before we do that, yeah, Jim. One quick comment is that uh, our listeners may know, but uh, you can subscribe to this uh, Dave's Pick series, and you'll get one in the mail every quarter. So you stay right up on top of uh, all the releases. Absolutely. And, and I'm mad at you for telling anybody because I don't want more people to know about it. I like to be able to sign up for the subscription every year and know I'm getting it. But you're absolutely right. It's a great way to do it because they are released in limited numbers. Um, and, and, and some of them do wind up selling out. And then, you know, they're, they're very difficult to track down, at least for a reasonable price. So um, we'll see. But uh, overall, good show today, guys. Rob, any parting words? Well, I've got some other big Grateful Dead news for, for those of you guys that don't know it. But um, Mark, Mark Allen, who's uh, the Garcia family's attorney, uh, actually, uh, he's their, um, their uh, manager from Red Light, just announced about a couple hours ago that there is going to be a Garcia documentary produced by Radical Media uh, and directed by Justin Kreutzman. So that, that just got announced, um, you know, obviously we record a few days before we, uh, we air, but four hours ago is uh, when Mark just dropped this on us. So that's... Now, is this going to also star Jonah Hill as Jerry? No, no, this is, this is a uh, true documentary. Okay. So uh, his, his comment on Facebook is, from late, night, from late night pandemic conversations to working with an incredible team, Radical Media, to produce Jerry Garcia documentary, pretty sure it's all the fun part, right, Justin Kreutzman and Trixie? And then it has a, um, a, a shot of <clears throat> where it's being dropped as a press release saying, Jerry Garcia documentary to be produced by Radical Media and Jerry Garcia Family LLC. Justin Kreutzman to direct um, as of nine o'clock this morning, so that's a uh, that's a pretty big one. I'm sure we'll have more information by the time we air next week, but you know that should be a, a pretty fun and cool thing coming out. I guess you know sort of in tandem with the um, with with the, the fictional you know movie with Jonah Hill. Right. Jonah's going to have to be careful now because there's going to be an immediate you know documentary to, to fact check him by. So. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what he does. But, yeah, that's great. Look, the, the, they can never do enough of that kind of stuff for me. I, you know, I love going out and seeing it, learn, learning new stories all the time and getting my kids a chance to see it all. So that's great news, too. Thank you very much, Rob. Appreciate it. Jim, any parting words? See everybody next week. Well, very good. We will look forward to seeing Jim next week. And to all of our listeners, please remember next week is Jim Marty's last week on the show as our co-host. Uh, we will be uh, concluding our retrospective of his career, and it'll be an opportunity for Jim to say goodbye uh, and talk about, I'm sure, some of his uh, imparting some of his final Grateful Dead moments and uh, the, the really good ones that stand out and all of that kind of stuff and uh, well worth listening to, and we will look forward to it. Uh, although we're sorry to say goodbye, uh, the show should be a lot of fun. So we hope everybody will tune in next week as well. Uh, otherwise, thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to Dan Humiston for producing. 
And uh, as we go out here now, uh, we will hear a clip of Casey Jones from uh, the 1973 show in Tampa, Florida, Dick's Picks Volume 1. Enjoy, and everyone enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canada podcasters right here on PodConnex and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.